Why spend hours searching dealerships, comparing makes and models? Find the best of BC's inventory in one place, todaysdrive.com. You'll have access to inventory across BC, where you can easily find a vehicle that fits your needs and gets you where you need to go in comfort. Get in the driver's seat. Don't miss out on the many options we have available for you. Powered by Black Press Media, todaysdrive.com connects you with exclusive new and used car deals. This is the Mojon Sports Podcast. A deeper dive into the great personalities we know and love. Now, here's your host, Bob the Moj Marjanovich. Welcome to episode 20 of The Bio, Mojonsports.com. It's the Moj, Bob Marjanovich. And today's subject is Grey Cup champion Travis Lule, outstanding player in the Canadian Football League in 2011 with the BC Lions. But before we get to Travis, got to tell you about every athlete is looking for a competitive edge. And you can find one at stokodesign.com. The K1 Embrace System wraps your legs with over 90 feet of high-strength support cables that are directly integrated into an ultra-comfortable compression tape. The cabling is positioned to naturally move with you, supporting your knee when you need it most. You can customize your level of support with two control dials in the waistband. This is the future of knee support. stokodesign.com this is the Mojon Sports Podcast. Time now for our feature bio. Here's Bob the Moj Marjanovich. This is episode 20 of the bio on Mojonsports.com. We'll have former BC Lions quarterback Travis Lule be the subject of our interrogation today. Travis, welcome. It's great to be back. I'm glad you called me former BC Lion and not former radio booth colleague, so... I don't know what that says about our time together in the booth, Moj. It was short, but it was good. That's right. It was part of the pre and right. shows. It was short, but it was good. As we talked about earlier, the whole premise of this interview is just to talk a little bit about you and your journey. Let's go right back to the start. Born in, I believe, Almsville, Oregon? Yeah, then- I was born in Salem, so at this hospital in Salem, which is... Yeah. 15 minutes down the road. So yeah, actually my home hometown is a state and sublimity area, just thriving metropolis. I'm sure you're aware. Almsville is the next little town over, but dad's business, the business I'm currently standing in as we speak is actually in Staten, as was the schools that I went to. Staten's kind of home, but yeah, Almsville was the home address. Most childhood like Childhood was good, really pretty idyllic when I look back on it. Big family, both sides, my mom's side of the family and dad's side of the family, both came to this area like 100 years ago, pioneers settling the West. So there are street names, Bodigheimer street name. That was my mom's maiden name is Bodigheimer. My grandfather lives at the end of Lule Road just outside of town. So if you say those two names around here, it's pretty commonplace. You get out in the world and people go, Lule, where's that from? But around here, everybody knows the name, good, bad, or indifferent, right? It's, it's a more common name around here. So it was good. Every Christmas, every Easter, big family gatherings, big, sprawling Catholic family. Everybody had lots of babies. So I have lots of cousins, aunts and uncles, most of all who still live locally. Childhood was good. We grew up outside of town, a country kid. My dad, I think, always wanted to be a cowboy. My grandfather was a logger, so they lived outside of town, worked in the woods. So dad had horses, so we grew up on 10 acres, and we were splitting wood on weekends, and that was life as a young guy in small-town USA. You know, it's funny you talk about streets named Lule. After your success, 
did they give you like a new street? Did you go from Lule Avenue? Now you got Lule Crescent or <laughs> Lule Drive or anything like that? No, 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 no love. You're just another one of the Lules. And what did you end up doing? One of them went over here. One of them did this. One of them played football in Canada for a while, but just one of the names. When did you get into sports and what do you remember in terms of your first memories? We were sports kids from the get-go. I think just our, our family was wired that way. My dad and uncles were on high school state championship football teams. And so that was their thing. They were all country kids growing up and played football on the weekends. The pasture next to my grandfather's house was called the ball field. You had a backstop up. So it was either football season and all the kids playing out there, kids who would be my dad and uncles and great uncles and cousins and whatnot. If you can imagine, like it's in a rural spot out of town and there was three Lule houses out there that was right next to the headquarters of what was the logging camp way back in the day. And then as the kids took over the logging timber side, they just built houses on some of the land where they had cleared some timber and lived out there. So that's how that all started. It was just in the family genes to be in sports and going to Super Bowl Sunday, big gatherings. And when we were five and six years old and trying to tag along with the older cousins. And so it just grew from there. And then because we grew up outside of town, it's my brother and I, as we'd get home from school and just what was the sport of the day? It was whatever it was. And we were really just junkies. It didn't matter. It was whatever season we were in. My uncle got drafted by the Padres. There was like this seed had been planted that you can leave the small town and go play sports on a bigger stage. And so it was football, basketball, baseball, soccer, growing up, just whatever season it was, that's what we did. Did you have that typical small town experience in terms of football? And that is Friday night lights, the high school, you go there Saturday, mm -hmm. whatever college team is closest. I guess for you might've won what, Oregon State? Oregon, and, Oregon State. And then Sunday, the NFL. So was that life for you, like growing up in terms of your weekends when football season was on? Yep, Friday night was the thing I remember. And mind you, we live in small towns. So in Oregon, at the time, there were four classifications. There's 4A being the biggest down to 1A playing eight-man football being the smallest. We're in a small town. The school here in Staten is a 3A high school, but we were at the small private Catholic high school in that small town. So we had less than 200 kids in grades 9 through 12. Our perception of what really good football or really good athlete was, was a little bit different. It was like the guys who were playing this Oregon small school two-way football in front of a thousand people on a Friday night. That was the coolest thing in the world. So we'd go to those football games, especially in junior high, when we'd be playing football off on the side field. And then if the game got close in the fourth quarter, you'd go run around the track and watch. And then both my folks graduated from Oregon State. So they were big Beaver people. So Saturdays we had end zone season tickets to Oregon State Beaver football. And if, I mean, if anybody remembers Beaver football in the nineties, like they never won ever. We never saw the Beavers win. So it developed a loyalty that was maybe different than a lot of folks. Cause I'm a Beaver guy growing up and my team never, ever won until I was a senior in high school. They had Dennis Erickson came back and they had the Chad Johnson and TJ Hushmanzada and Jonathan Smith, that era was super exciting for us long-suffering beaver people. So We're talking about playing small-town football and thinking you were really good because that was your level of competition. When was your first eye-opener where you went, holy smokes, these guys are good. Yeah, I started to attend some like camps in the summers. And so now I'm comparing myself to the kid who's a starting quarterback at Jesuit High School in Portland. They're the number one 4A team in the state. And I'm like, I don't think that guy's better. Just because he goes to a bigger school, that doesn't mean he gets to be better than me. And so I started to figure that out. And actually, it probably worked in my favor because I had a little bit of chip on my shoulder, right? 
you could tell that those guys, they're like, oh, the 2A guys, like they're a different level of competition than not on our level. And then we'd start to throw and you'd turn a few heads and be like, yeah, just because I grew up in a smaller town doesn't mean I can't throw the pill a little bit. I started to transition my thinking maybe a little bit later on in high school thinking, shoot, I got a chance. And I'm seeing that kid over there. He got a scholarship to where X, Y, and Z school. And that kid got a scholarship. I'm going, well, shoot, maybe I got a chance to get some of my school paid for. Not really knowing what that meant, but but that be, kind of became my goal. Is I knew when I was about a junior in high school, I knew that I was probably going to play football. I'm a 6'2 white guy in basketball. I can't dribble that great. So I think my opportunities were going to be limited there. I loved baseball, but baseball was such a tremendous commitment in the summertime. And frankly, I did too much stuff to commit to baseball the way you need to in the summer because I was playing summer basketball and I was going to all these football camps and team camps at Willamette and Western Oregon and things like that. So I just couldn't fully commit to baseball the way you would have needed to get recruited. So yeah, football became my college meal ticket. Montana State, that's where you wind up going. What was the recruiting process like? Did you get recruited by bigger <clears throat> schools, but maybe you chose Montana State because of the academics or maybe the playing time? I mean, how did you wind up going to Montana State? Was it a no-brainer or were there, was it a tough decision? It came out of the blue, to be honest. Even though I'm trying to expand how I'm seeing the world and where I could p potentially go to play, I thought I'd play small college football. I thought maybe it would be a Linfield or a Western Oregon was transitioning from an NAI school to NCAA Division II, but the program wasn't very good because it's going to take them years to catch up to the Division II level. Willamette is right down the street. I'd been going to Willamette camp for years. They were playing, I think they were playing Division Three at the time, or NAI had just become Division Three, something like that. So... That was what I thought might happen. And then I started talking to Portland State. So now it's the big sky. So now I'm getting one double A looks. But Portland State, they had a full quarterback scholarship roster. And so they said, we're only taking one scholarship kid in your class. Right now we have one kid in the state ranked above you. That's where the scholarship offer is and unless he does something else. And so Montana State totally came out of the blue. They had called me previously. I didn't, this is dating myself a little bit here, Moj. I had to send VHS tapes out to my college teams to get your tape out there. And so they said, we want to see your film. And I didn't send it to Montana State. I said, yeah, okay, I'm not going to go there. And then a coach was recruiting another kid in the Portland area. And he said, hey, I want to swing by your school. I said, okay. He came, he had my film on. I remember I walked in, it's basketball season now. So that's where my head's at. I walk in and he's watching film and he's like, who's recruiting you? And I was like, Portland State and Linfield, but I don't have any offers. He said, we're officially recruiting you right now. We're formally recruiting you. I want you to fly out to Bozeman, check out what we got going on with our program. And so I literally met him on a Tuesday, flew out on a Friday, was offered a scholarship on a Sunday and committed to Montana State on a Wednesday. It was like that fast. I didn't know what the school was to, I've been there and I'm all in for that program. And the funny thing was when I came back, I called Portland State and I said, hey, listen, does this change anything? I'm throwing you guys a bone. I'm thinking I wanted to stay in state. I'm a 18 year old homebody. And they said, no, we still got the scholarship offer stands for this other kid. I said, okay, I'm committing to Montana state. And then as fate would have it, like two days later, that kid commits to Boise, Portland state's beating my door down saying, you're our favorite guy. We need you, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I, you know, and I'm a, I'm just a overly loyal 18 year old. As I mentioned, I said, Hey, I already committed. I'm not breaking my word to those coaches there. I'm going to Montana state. You light it up there. I'm looking at the numbers. School records for career passing yards, 11th all-time <clears> NCAA <throat> Division I AA, single-season total offense record, total offense in a career, 
And more importantly, in four years there, you had three victories over Montana, which is probably the bigger thing. I mean, it sounds like it was just a great ride and a great choice to go to that school. It absolutely turned out that way. It's funny. So this morning, I actually went to a little career fair at the local high school, and we did mock interviews with high school kids, and they're making choices, what they want to do, where are they going to go to school. And I had that conversation. I was like, I made a decision as an 18-year-old that kind of set my life off on a path. And you have no idea. You don't know that when you're young like that. And that's not to put pressure on it, but that's just the reality of life, right? I, I went there. I got thrown into the fire as a freshman. The plan would have been to redshirt me. We had a fifth-year senior transfer actually from Oregon State, funny enough, who was set to be the starter. And he just struggled a little bit. The team struggled a little bit. And they, they just threw me out there. And we started winning. And five games into my true freshman year, I was the starting quarterback. And I was for the rest of my career there. So I was put in a position. I had some good guys around us. The program was on the rise. Bozeman was growing. People were getting attracted to Montana State football again. Like for 15 years, Montana was the big brother and it wasn't even close at that time. Like they were the defending national champions. That's your in-state rival. And since the Dave Dickinson era in the 90s, like Dave is the beloved son of Montana, right? And so like this whole era started to shift a little bit in our time there. As you mentioned, we won three out of four. All of a sudden, some money comes back into the program and a little bit of energy and excitement. And I was able to get my degree there and I played enough to get go off and pursue this pro career as it were. Yeah, it was uh, Montana really suited me being a little bit more rural. I was a small town country kid like Montana felt right to me felt like home and to this day i love it i love that having had that experience and try to get back to bozeman whenever i get the chance to more with travis lule after this you're listening to the mojon sports podcast redefine how you lead take the next step in your leadership journey with ignite management become a leader that positively impacts those around you create an environment where your team thrives be in control of your own development with a detailed analysis of your leadership style, complete with actionable insights and recommendations. Visit ignitemanagement.ca for more info. Travis, after Montana, you wind up going to camp with the Seattle Seahawks. For a kid who was thinking of playing at Linfield or that great program at Eastern Oregon or Willamette or whatever, Hey, I've been to Legron, man. Uh, we could talk yeah. about Legron. When you were like coming out of high school, I don't know if you had any NFL aspirations, but clearly, after playing university football, you're going to camp with the Seattle Seahawks. What was that experience like? It was super exciting. And, and again, I didn't go to college thinking that this was my path to the NFL, right? It's like, oh, this is cool. I get to play football while I'm getting my degree. And then as I performed at a pretty high level and I started having scouts and agents reach out to me, I was like, holy cow, they think I'm a pro guy. Let's give this thing a shot, you know, was how it went for me. It was like, yeah, I guess I'm young. That was my approach. I'll have the rest of my life to, to work in whatever field, career capacity that leads me. But shoot, I can only do this now. So let's give it a run. And I had always told myself, if I get a legitimate opportunity, I get out there and I get a play and it just, I'm just... I'm not at that level. I underperform significantly. I can't play. I have no bones about that, but I want to give it a shot. So that was what kept me going in those early years, because even as I got into camp with the Seahawks, I'm the fifth guy on a roster. Mike Holmgren's a head coach. The Seahawks had just lost in the Super Bowl to the Steelers in Detroit, like two months prior to me signing with them. So they're, they were Seahawks fans would say a couple of calls away from being Super Bowl champs back in Super Bowl 40. Matt Hasselbeck's the perennial pro bowler, the reigning MVP of the NFL, Sean Alexander, is the starting tailback. 
just a phenomenal offensive line. This team was just a well-oiled machine at the time, right? So I go in there and there was just not a ton of opportunities in training camp. Holmgren's old school, the one preps for the season because we're trying to win a Super Bowl. Hasselbeck takes the overwhelming majority of the snaps and the two who was Seneca Wallace, he got the leftovers, right? Three, four, and five, we watched. We were spectators at training camp. So as an undrafted free agent, I'm like, golly, I want to do, I want to show them, but there's no real chance for me to show what I can do. So I'm just overdoing the drill work and being super technical and making every perfect throw to running backs I can and one-on-one to stand up. I must've showed enough that they said, okay, there's some potential in this kid, but we don't know if he can play. So they re-signed me that winter and shipped me to NFL Europe because NFL Europe at the time essentially was a developmental kind of feeder league for the NFL. At the time, the GM in BC, the BC Lions owned my rights. Bob Obilovich was the GM. Bob's got Montana ties. Bob had seen me play in college. That's how I was on BC's neg list. He was calling me saying, hey, we want you to come up to Canada. We like you. You're, you're well suited to this game up here. I said, hey, I got this contract offer from the Seahawks. They want to send me to Europe. I remember I was on a plane and he was arguing with me that the CFL develops quarterbacks better than the NFL Europe. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm re-signing with Seattle. Thanks, Bob, kind of thing. And so I got an opportunity to play in Europe and then came back and I actually got hurt in Europe. So I missed that second training camp with the Seahawks when I felt like, okay, now I've, I know the offense. I'm going to get to go back to champ. I'll get a chance to compete this year. But now I was hurt. They end up releasing me. I spend the year on, on IR. And then that next spring was when it was, uh, am I going to keep trying to do this thing or am I going to move on with my life? So that's when I had to sit down and make a choice. Yeah. And you also wind up getting a cup of coffee with the New Orleans Saints. So, I mean, you worked with some interesting quarterbacks and Matt Hasselbeck and also Drew Brees. How much of an impact did they have on your career moving forward? More than those guys know. In hindsight, I was a wide-eyed, green really a raw 22-year-old athlete. When I watch my own college film now, I'm like, ooh, you know, the, I see this about that guy would change his game, or he ought to, I wish that guy would do that differently. So I always tell what I would tell younger quarterbacks in training camp years later, I'm like, listen, if they're critiquing you or I'm critiquing you, I would say the same things about myself at your age. These are just things to work on to be a pro. And so in hindsight, I wasn't quite ready as a 22-year-old. I was just too raw and not ready to lead an NFL franchise. I don't have any bitterness about not having that opportunity because I, I get it after having been a pro years later. But both Matt and Drew, they were established in their careers. They were so confident in what they were doing, the way they worked with the play callers, the way they could communicate to teammates, the way they led in a locker room, like all of that was like, holy cow, that's the standard, right? That's the standard to be a pro. That was awesome for me to see. Writing these things down, I'm like, okay, look how Matt has a great relationship with the defensive backs. And the defensive lineman, it's not like he's just talking to the other quarterback buddies. Drew Brees was the same way. When I came back after having been hurt, I signed with New Orleans. They signed me to a contract after a minicamp because I had a really good three-day minicamp. I was just getting, again, getting a little bit more experience. I had played in NFL Europe. I came back, I'm competing with guys who now I'm like, okay, I'm going to level up from these guys. I can tell, I can feel it. And I was acting and playing as such. So now they signed me. I'm there for a day. Drew Brees comes up to me, invites me to a thing that he's got a charitable event, taking kids fishing out on the Mississippi River flats as we were at Pours into the Gulf. We're red fishing with guides, make a wish foundation thing for kids. 
Like he didn't actually need my help. And I was aware of that. He doesn't need me. He had this thing all lined up. He invited me just to throw me a bone and say, hey, young guy, you're on the team. This is how we operate. And so for me, it was like, okay, I get it. Like he was like putting out his arm and saying, welcome. So all those little things, um, if and when I get the chance to have the keys to the car of a team, I'm the starting quarterback of a franchise. Like these are the things you do if you want to have success. All right. You mentioned that when recruited by Bob Obilovich and the BC Lions, you obviously wind up in BC in 2010. How much do you know of the CFL? Or because of Dickinson, was there an increased knowledge of the league and you followed it or was it completely foreign to you? There was. I knew about the Canadian Football League because of Dave Dickinson, because he was such a well-liked and popular figure in Montana, all of the sports write-ups. And at the time, he was playing for the BC Lions. So I was seeing what the BC Lions were doing in the playoffs. This would have been my college career would have been that 03-4-5. I know Dickie went down to camp with the Chargers and came back. And so I knew that whole story, right? And so I didn't know it intimately well, but I had a respect for the league that maybe a lot of guys don't when they come up. It's, so for me, it wasn't like this inferior players up there. And so I know for a fact that helped me coming into camp years later, because a lot of guys think, oh, I'm going to get some film up here and go back and have a chance to make it back in the NFL. But it was like, man, if you don't take this seriously, this is going to chew you up and spit you out so fast before you even know what hit you, right? I had a really healthy respect for the game coming up. And there's no question that because I was in Montana and they were following Dickie, that I knew that I'd been following what was going on. More with Travis Lule after these messages. You're listening to the Mojon Sports Podcast. Whenever it comes to tires or meeting your automotive needs, I only send my friends to one place, OK Tire and Langley. OK Tire and Langley is more than just tires. It's about complete automotive care, and it's about being treated right by my good friends, the Delaney family. Delaney's OK Tire and Langley, 19863 Fraser Highway, or call them at 604-530-2545. Travis, of course, 2011 is such a great story. The team gets off to an 0-6 start to the BC Lions, and you wind up rebounding. The team does. You do. Everybody does. You win a great cup. You win the most outstanding player award. When you look back at 2011, what really sticks out for you? One, it was such a cool like life lesson. And if you believe in what you're doing, you believe in your process and you can make some minor tweaks to what you're doing, you just got to be mindful of. And I say that because the difference being so often, especially in sports world, people want to see drastic change. And I can imagine from internally being part of an organization, you have to do something to make it look like you're doing something different, right? To the outside, you have to project to your fan base, to your own players, even that, hey, this is what we're doing to make things better. But when we were on five, if you recall, we didn't make drafts. They didn't fire Jacques Chapelaine. They didn't fire Mike Benavides. I didn't get benched, make a quarterback change. Cause you know, I remember sitting down with Wally while I was like, if Trav, if you were the problem, I would tell you and I would, you know, I would sit you down. Is that, a, is that a Wally impersonation? That's like a little Wally in person. Travis, that's not you. Man, that's the whole team. Not bad. <laughs> yeah, it's been a few years since I had him in meetings every day. I used to nail that one. So that was really a, a really cool takeaway. We made a couple additions, a couple key pieces. Kareem Smith, we picked up. Tad Cornegay shuffled the defensive line around a little bit. Plugged Andrew Harris into the lineup a little bit more. And Arlen Bruce came. So it was just like a few little tweaks to the big puzzle. And all of a sudden, we're off and running. Uh, that was really cool to see. We took great leadership to do it. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but the one thing I remember about that team, having been the sideline reporter that year and covering the team, but 
you made some changes. You mentioned it, like Robertson got taken out of the starting running back spot. Andrew Harris came in. I think Paris Jackson got taken out of the lineup. There are other things, but the one thing that I noticed though, the one thing I remember, and I always talk about this, was that those guys didn't bitch and complain why they weren't in the lineup. They almost acted as mentors slash coaches for the guys that replaced them. And to me, it was a real lesson in the sense that you talk about checking your ego and pulling for the common cause, so to speak. To me, that was the epitome of that team and some of the players on that team that lost their starting roles that still did what they had to do as professionals to, to help out. Yes, you're 100% right. Jamal Robertson was a popular guy in the locker room, right? Like he had NFL pedigree, just a really consistent, showed up every day, worked his tail off. And when Andrew started to rise up and Andrew was a little bit younger, a little bit more explosive, we had some personnel packages for him. It was like, yeah, Jamal could have really been sour and made it harder for everybody. And it was hard for him on a personal level, but he he bucked up and did it. And in fact, later in that year, when we had injuries, we had to shuffle the roster and ratio around. We plugged Jamal in and Jamal showed out, had a huge game against Edmonton and one of the first games back in BC plays late in that playoff run. And if you're whining and complaining sour about your lot in life, you can't show up and perform when you need to. Same story with Paris Jackson. Paris hurt his knee. Paris sat down, all of a sudden, Akeem Foster had a great year that year. And when Paris got healthy, it was like, you know what, we're leaving Akeem in the lineup. So we had a number of those. Khalif Mitchell came on, which meant that it was Aaron who had to take a little bit of his load off. Brent Johnson did less once we got Kareem Smith. Like we had some just great veteran guys who their role transitioned a little bit in a critical part of the year. And those guys did what they needed to do as teammates to make our team the, a championship caliber team. It looks like you are on the cusp of winning more Grey Cups when you have that group, and unfortunately you didn't. A lot of it had to do with the fact that, well, you always seem to get hurt. I looked at the list. I still remember the game against Montreal down the left sideline in that end zone where the locker rooms are. You get surgery in November. You missed the first half of the 2014 season rehabbing. 2015, you get a torn MCL against the Alouettes again. Newsflash, don't play against the Owls. 2016... You're a backup to Jonathan Jennings. Then you come in and then you injure your knee again. How frustrating was it? it? Clearly it had to be frustrating, but was there anything that really stood out for you out of all those injuries that you just said enough of this already? Yeah, kind of the way it went. And you're right. 2012 was really the year that looking back, we feel like we had a team that could have won. And Calgary just, they played a really good game in that Western final at BC Place in 2012. We lost... Um, that year, we might have had the best team in the league. We just weren't the best team in the playoffs. And so 13, we still had a good football team, and that's when it began. My shoulder went out. We were still in first place in the West when that happened. We had a good team, but I missed a bunch of games late, lost in the playoffs. So after that, it was like you'd had this shoulder injury once in Europe. You re-injured it again here in 13. Played that playoff game on just grit, but my shoulder probably wasn't healthy enough to be playing in that game. And so we made the decision to have the surgery as soon as the season ended there. And 2014, that was the hard part, right? So worked really hard to get back. 2014, and Wally acquired Kevin Glenn because we, we thought we had a team that could compete, but we needed that. Obviously, in the CFL, you need a quarterback. So Kevin comes in, and my rehab was just, frankly, it was taking as long as we thought it would. I didn't get healthy extra fast. So September comes around. I'm still only like 10 months removed from that surgery. That was my first game back. I don't know if you recall that we were in Ottawa. First game back, played a solid game. We're beating Ottawa. And right at the end of the game, my shoulder came out again. And so that was the moment for me that was like, I walked off the field in tears and tremendous pain and thought it was over. I thought I was done. And I thought I played my last game in that moment. I remember 
just the rest of the year, kind of feeling like, okay, this is the swan song. I'm trying to heal up. I'm not going to have this surgery again. My shoulder's already been through too much surgically. So this is what it is. I have this kind of compromised shoulder. And I remember as the season ended, I sat down having that talk with Wally. He was like, listen, if you want to try to rehab, there's still a spot here for you. And I said, I can only do this while I can. Let's rehab like crazy, see what happens. I think like mentally, I know my, the rest of my body is great. If I can get my shoulder again, I can come back and play. I really didn't know. But that 2015 offseason felt like, you know what? Maybe there's some more football in me. Jeff Tedford became the head coach. So there was some excitement going into that year. But again, it was hardly ready. 2015 training camp was super shortened. I did come back and play at the beginning of the year, but it still was like, I, the shoulder's not quite where it needs to be. And as my shoulder starts coming around about week five or six, tear my MCL, my left knee, Jonathan Jennings goes in and plays and starts playing pretty good football. In a weird kind of twist of fate, it was a chance for me to breathe. Like, I don't have to play compromise right now. Jonathan is more than capable. He's playing good football right now. And I remember thinking, you asked, like, it was frustrating. Yes, obviously, you want to be out there. But I remember having a moment. It was like, okay, Trev, you've been the starting quarterback. You've preached the importance of the room, of the other quarterbacks in the group. Like, who are you if you shut down and get all pouty about your lot in life when you're injured? You got to show up and be the same guy you've always been if, you know, if that's, so it's like a internal challenge to myself. So that's who I just decided to be. And so much of it is, how are you going to approach this circumstance, the situation that you're dealt with? And so that's the path I chose. So even though I had ups and downs from there, I had another heartbreak in 2017. I started playing again. I was actually playing some of the best football of my entire career for a chunk of the 2017 season. And then they said, okay, Jonathan had been banged up a little, Trav, you're our starter. And then I blow out my knee. So it was just like, what are you going to do now? I've been chewed up and spit out by this game of football and the, these injuries. You can't break me. I don't want my career to end limping off the field. So I'm going to give it one more go. My arm feels fine now. And so I'm going to rehab this knee. Came back and played that 18 season. We had some good moments, had some good wins. We ended up getting humbled in the playoffs. And I remember uh, coming off the field in Hamilton and going like, yeah, I think that was it. I think this thing has run its course. It was hard by the end, you know, and the biggest thing for me, Moj, I used to be able to put in the extra effort to get that one or 2% better than the competition. And now all of my energy was consumed by just hitting this like baseline level of physical ability, right? Rehab sucked everything out of me. I didn't have any capacity to be better than everyone else anymore. And so I just felt like I'm getting closer to average. I don't want to be that. This doesn't feel right. I got young kids. Let's go live life after football. You know, it's interesting, the fact that you got hurt so much. And we have a common friend, Chris Boyko, who was the strength and conditioning coach for the Lions. I see Chris every week. I do fascia stretch therapy with him. So I always ask him, I said, so all the guys you worked with the Lions, who's like, he goes, Travis Lule was like Gumby. Like, dude was like, you could do anything. You're like one of these Olympic gymnasts or something. I guess you could put your ankle over your head if you wanted. I don't know. But the thing that really we always talk about with you is the fact that you were so flexible in terms of your body composition. And usually when you have those attributes, you don't get hurt. But with you, for whatever reason, it just seemed like the injuries followed you around. One thing, though, that, I mean, if I was you, I'd probably be sitting at some bar in, I don't know, Willamette or Klamath Falls or something at the end of the bar on a Friday night. And I'd be bitter in the sense that all these injuries happened to me and they didn't allow me to fulfill my potential. But is it easier to look back on the career, Travis, because of the fact that you did win a Grey Cup and you did win a most outstanding player award? So... 
There's not that question of, if I was healthy, I could have done this. You knew what could happen when you went healthy. You won a championship and you won a most outstanding player award. Does that kind of help deal with all the injuries and all the frustration? Yeah, I'd be lying if I said otherwise. I do think so. And so for me, again, like, how do you choose to think about this? Could I say, oh, man, I would have won and more MOPs and been a great cup, multiple great time, great cup champ. Like you could do that. It's not healthy. It doesn't help me doesn't do anything for me. What I do know is that I was able to be a starting quarterback on a championship team. I was named the most outstanding player. I go back when I was 22 years old. If you had told me that five years from now, you will get the opportunity to do that. If you just stay this course, I would have taken that every single time. I was around the game long enough to see how many guys who just love the game and wanted to make a career out of this. And for whatever reason, it didn't happen. They weren't quite good enough or the circumstance didn't play itself out or they got injured in a critical moment. There's such a, just a fine line that who am I to complain, right? If I go to that guy, the guy who got cut in his first training camp with the Lions and I'm like, oh man, my career wasn't what it should have been. And that guy's looking at me like, are you kidding me? You gotta be the MVP. After all of that, Moj, I like, I'm one of the lucky ones. I gotta do it. I gotta live that dream out. So yeah, so obviously there's some heartbreaking moments, but that's life, right? Like that's just life. It's not all smooth sailing and I gotta live out some pretty awesome ones. Now, when you were going through all those injuries, did you start thinking about life after football? Because clearly you're getting banged up all the time and you might be thinking to yourself, even after the first, second or third major injury that you had, that I gotta start thinking about my post football career because you seem to transition pretty well. You worked for the Lions in the front office for a bit. You were part of our broadcast team. We mentioned that earlier. But you wind up going <laughs> back to Oregon and working as a financial advisor. So it seems like you made a smooth transition. Was it very smooth? I'd say it's still happening in full disclosure. And I say that because that's how it ought to be if you're committed to what you're doing, right? There's going to be a transition. So in my head, and I'd heard a number of guys speak, guys who'd been in the, the sports world for a lot of years, I just knew it wasn't going to be like that, right? So in my mind, I always said this whole life transition on the other side of playing, it's probably a five-year process. So that's where I feel like I'm in the midst of that, that five years still. But it feels good. I'll say that partially because I went in knowing that it's not just overnight smooth sailing onto the next venture. So what it came down to for us, me, my family, I have three young kids and we're going, holy cow, this is an opportunity for us that we can do whatever we want with life, right? I could pursue the football thing. I had opportunities in coaching, opportunities in scouting. I was on the business of football side. I could have pursued that. But the thing for us was both of our parents are still healthy. They both still live back in the same area we're from. I've been in communication with my brother the last few years of my career, knowing as my, so my dad had started this financial planning practice in the eighties. My brother had been working with him since 2010. It's more than a one advisor shop anymore. It's just naturally grows over time. So if I don't come back and do that and see, that was always my back pocket plan. I'd gotten my degree in finance. If I don't come back, then my brother, Tyler, is going to have to hire an outside partner as my dad gets closer to retirement age. Right now, I'm working in business when I was working for the Lions. If I'm going to work in 
private business. Why would I not consider that? It really didn't take long. Once the whole whirlwind of football ended and I decided not to pursue the coaching world, I was just around a lot of coaches and making really difficult family decisions on taking jobs across country or in a different country for that matter. With young kids, I sought out that same type of childhood that I had that was really stable around a lot of family. It was what both my wife and I's like coming of age experience was like. We wanted that for our kids family legacy, second generation family business, getting an opportunity to work with my brother, raise the kids around grandparents, their cousins in small town USA. It's what we knew. It's what we wanted for our kids. That's how we ultimately made the decision to be here. You got three kids, right? Three boys, three girls, no, no three, three girls. Kids. Okay. No boys. I was just going to say, I could see you coaching your son's team in high school or Bantam or whatever, but who knows? Maybe there's still time for that. Oh, listen, <laughs> I've been, I'm coaching softball. I'm coaching basketball and a little bit of t-ball and soccer right now. Oh, you got four so you got four sports going. You're busy. So I'm coaching. It's just not as a profession. Do you ever <laughs> see yourself getting back into football? I don't know. I don't foresee that at this time. Not in uh certainly not in a professional pursuit. I don't know. I'm one of those. I never say never, but right now that's just not where life's leading us. Like I, if I end up helping at a local high school or local middle school, I've been getting asked from time to time, Hey, are you ready to coach the middle school team? Are you ready to help at the high school? So we'll see. We'll see if someday that gives in. I have worked with a few of the local kids who are getting ready to go off to college. We'll just find out I'm back in town and Hey, maybe show me a few pointers so I can scratch that itch that way. But no, formally, I don't know. I don't know what will happen. <laughs> well, I know one thing. You're a god down there because as we wrap up, I think I told you this story. I had Will Disley, the Seahawk tight end, on our <laughs> show one time. And we asked, Montana guy. And he's a Montana guy. You ever heard of Travis Lule? And like the words out of his mouth were, Travis Lule, he's a god. And I guess the long, <laughs> to make a long story short, you played basketball or something with his older brother? So his older brother was on the basketball team at Montana State yeah. at the same, same time I was on the football team. So yeah, so we were in the athlete weight room all the time. Yep, going to all yeah. their games. So yeah, Will looked at you. I guess he was a young kid and he remembers watching you play football and he just raved about Travis and how much of a god he was. But yeah, you're a king down there. I wouldn't be moving either. Hey, Travis, this has been a blast. It's been a lot of fun catching up with you and hearing your story. And we thank you so much for taking time out to stop by. Thanks, Coach. Always a blast to catch up on the past. The Mojon Sports Podcast. For more episodes, check out mojonsports.com. Discover what's happening around our province with todayinbc.com. Sign up today to get the latest news right to your inbox and never miss the news that's important to you and your family. From community news in your neighborhood to what's happening in our province, your source for daily news is todayinbc.com.